From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. I am here with pastors Mel Massengale and Todd Stanley. Salutations. Buenos dias. Okay, so we're going to start off with a topic that is a little weird, um, but you just have to trust me. I think that we... We do not have to trust you, <laughs> yeah. for the record. <laughs> you don't have to trust me, but uh, hopefully you will be entertained and informed. Okay, so the, the proposition I want to make here is that we are in the midst of a spiritual war, that this is happening all around us all the time. And that most of the time, most people uh, get lost in the minutiae of their daily existence and the monotony of it. And they can begin to close their eyes to the reality of the spiritual war. They can close their eyes to the fact that what I would say is the fact that the same forces that caused historical atrocities like Auschwitz are still operating in this space today the space they live in, that those entities are still there and they're still playing on humanity. They're still, they might even be playing on you as an individual and that those things should be taken seriously. Like we should have a, um, we shouldn't be afraid of them in the sense that we're afraid that, uh, our God is not strong enough to combat these issues. Um, but we shouldn't flippantly disregard them. Okay. And so now I'm going to make the case for this, for this reality, what I would say is a reality. And we can talk about that, whether or not spiritual warfare in this moment is a reality. But the case I would make is that you see uh, little things pop up here and there um, that I would say are examples of like a satanic signature. Um, And so one of the things that I'd found recently was the black paintings by Francisco Goya. And so you can look them up. Did we talk about this on another podcast? We did a little bit. Yeah, we touched on Goya a little bit. That's what I I was thinking. Did I dream that? No, No, we we did. Uh, I think two episodes ago, maybe. Yeah, I can't remember how deep we got into it. I think think we just might have mentioned him in passing. Yeah. Um, And if you want to look up uh, several of the paintings that I would say are they have a religious character to them. Um, one of them is called two old men and it's a, it's, it's, it's basically a demon whispering into a shepherd's ear. And the, the fact that it's a shepherd is, is delivered prominently. The shepherd's hook is, is right there in the middle of the painting. Uh, there's another one called men reading. And so they're gathered around a book and they have uh, grimaces on their faces. And one of them is looking upwards toward heaven. Maybe that's, maybe they're reading the word of God. Um, and again, these are all hypotheticals and we're, and we're not going to spend too much time, uh, discussing like tearing apart the paintings, but, uh, the witch's Sabbath is, I would say a demonic, uh, counter to the last supper. It's, it's structured almost exactly the same mm-hmm. way in terms of how the people are laid out. Uh, so that that's in, in terms of Goya's paintings and we can, if there's anything else you guys want to say on that, let's, let's take care of that in this moment and then we'll move on to the next two. I will say one thing I will give Francisco Goya is that uh, he had a knack for naming his paintings. Yeah. So <laughs> what, what's what's interesting? Things like the dog or man mocked by two women or. Yeah. So the, the crazy thing about. Uh, so, so he I think his 
the people who survived him named these. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and that makes me feel better yeah. then. Because yeah. it's like, I've got this painting I'm doing of some men reading. What should we call it? Men reading. Men reading. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Genius. Dogs playing poker. <laughs> <laughs> it's a masterpiece. Da Vinci would be jealous. Uh, so, yeah, that, what's one of the things that's so weird about these pieces of art is that he painted these as murals on the walls of his villa. And as far as we know, he never intended for anyone else to see them. And when he died, people came in and cut them out of his house and put them in museums. And so, and, and again, it won't make sense to the listener unless they look up the paintings and, and, and actually see the, uh, the facial expressions on these people that he painted. But I have to think that if you're able to spend that much time painting these facial expressions and making them not only so much attention to detail in that moment, but also getting them accurate to what I think what someone who is demon possessed would look like, uh, you know, and, and maybe it's because I'm steeped in Hollywood demon possession and I've, <laughs> like, I've seen that, you know, and I, but, but Goya came before that, like he wasn't watching the exorcist. So where did this come from for him? And why was he able to spend so much time doing this? And why was he doing it knowing or at least thinking no one was ever going to see it? What what was controlling his mind in that moment? And so I think that that's interesting. Um, we, it may just be something where each person takes it for, for what it's worth. But uh, yeah, any other thoughts on that before we go to the next two? Yeah, well, I mean, so the paintings are really interesting. I guess my question would be, what's our point of departure from there? What what is it that we're gleaning from Goya in this in this way that can be helpful for us as as we're trying to lead people and help them to be cognizant of, uh, you know, spirits that you know the spirit of the enemy, the spirits of the age, the you know the forces of darkness that are operating in the world. What what's what's helpful for us? I think so. I think that the major issue here is that there seems to be a universal pull towards forgetting that we are in a spiritual war, to forgetting that these principalities and powers are actually there. Yeah. Um, and I think that the same thing even happens with people in their relationship with God a lot of times. I think that I think the number of people who do not put thought to God until chaos emerges or until something happens to them. That number is enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we see it even when you don't have something classically evil uh, happen. But if you have like a tragedy in someone's life or they lose a loved one, it's like, okay, well now we need to pray. Now mm-hmm. we need to. St- well, uh, Michael, you might not be old enough to remember this. I know Todd is, but like 2001 uh, in September, I remember yeah. Um, I remember watching the planes, uh, the second plane hit tower number two, uh, you know, a nine 11 yeah. and you know, um, the next, uh, the next weekend, our church was packed. Um, we had prayer services after that people showed up because there was so much confusion. There was so much, um, fear, fear in the world that people were looking for answers. And so I think. I think we see lots of practical examples of that, that when our lives are disrupted by, we can call it evil, when our lives are disrupted by evil or even something maybe not as overt as evil, but negative consequences or negative negative circumstances in our lives, um, it's easy to go, okay, 
there's got to be a bigger meaning. There's got to be something more. There's got to be what what is what is causing this? What's happening? And and I think that drives us. So my next question is when in the aftermath of 9/11, let's say, uh, when you were observing Christians in church and leaders of Christians in, in pastoral ministry, what did you notice about them that was different during that time? And can we manufacture that condition without having to wait for something terrible to happen? Or Because I think a lot of times the thing that's terrible that happens that mm-hmm. evokes this sense of repentance is caused by the spiritual slumber that people fall into. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we fall asleep and then something horrible happens and then we wake up and then we repent and then we come back into contact with spiritual reality. And it seems to me like we could dodge that whole cycle <laughs> if we simply stay awake. But that's that's the million dollar question, right? Like that's the whole entire book of Judges. It, I mean, you just summed it up. It's right. People get spiritually lazy. There are bad things that happen to them. They cry out to God. God shows up because he's faithful and loving and benevolent and merciful. Um, people are grateful. They celebrate. And then they fall right back into yeah. their old routines. And really, that's the whole point of the book is like over like the, the writer of Judges was writing those stories, recording those things for Israel to say, don't fall asleep. Yeah. Don't keep repeating this pattern. Don't fall into this trap. But that it, that's that's just part and parcel of being human. Um, you know, we I mean, even it's baked in, like even if you, you look at a child, right? Like a child falls and, you know, scrapes their knee or whatever. Immediately they run to a a parent, to someone that they trust, to someone that they believe can protect them and will take care of them. And like, and, and then it stops hurting. You put them back down and they go and do the exact thing that they were doing before. Right. (laughs) And they fall and scrape the other knee. It's baked into (laughs) who we are as humans. Right. Uh, And so there has to be an intentional pushback against that tendency on our part, which is part of what the work of the Holy Spirit in us is all about to 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 bring us alive. Right. To to make us aware, to um, to help us, to guide us, to to continue to turn our attention back toward Jesus. Uh, 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 Depending on when you're listening to this, this may be more relevant than others, but um, Christmas season is, has come to an end. I took my oldest daughter to the airport. She flew southwest from <laughs> from Pittsburgh to Tampa or to Orlando, and Southwest has in the last few weeks has canceled canceled thousands of flights, and they've gotten so much bad oh, press man, yeah. and so many angry people and all those kind of things. And so my daughter was talking to me on the way to the airport. She said, "I hope they don't cancel flights," and I said, "They they may," but I said. If I was betting, I would bet that this is the best time to fly Southwest mm-hmm. because they're going to be more aware, more cognizant of yeah. what their mistakes have been. They're going to try to get things right. They're going to try to correct what the issues were. So, like, they've, their awareness of their own deficiencies has risen. And yeah. so this is probably a good time to buy some flights in Southwest because I imagine they're going to have some fare, some cheap fares, you know, like. Or some stock because it's plummeted. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, but, like, they're aware of of what their shortcomings are and so they're they're adding attention to it they're giving energy to it and and that's and I, you're exactly right I, and I don't know and, and this might be this 
this might be faulty on my part, but I don't know if we're capable as humans of living with a 100% awareness of Mm -hmm. the glory of God and our own sinfulness and our own shortcomings all the time. I don't know if we can. I don't even know if we're able to. Um, but it is an issue for us as pastors to pay attention to for ourselves or church leaders, but also like, how do we help our people keep from falling into this same routine over and over and over? And if we can't, like, how do we help them, you know, rebound from it and be more resilient, um, rather than just wait for the next tragedy to roll around? Yeah. I mean, I think the antidote is the gospel. I think it always has to come back to that. People who don't know Christ need the gospel because the Holy Spirit is drawing them to salvation and to repentance. People who are saved need to be reminded of the gospel because we need to stay in tune with our dependence on Jesus. The fact that they're... um, you know, that there is a spiritual reality that's at play, that we we walk by faith and not by sight, right? Mm-hmm. That we're not governed mm-hmm. by what we can see, uh, but there are things that we cannot see that really are more real than things that we see. Well, we were talking before we started recording that um, that it's easy, it's easy to see evil in our world and want... Uh, want to come up with physical solutions for Mm -hmm. spiritual problems. And, um, and I believe that God can present physical solutions that can have, you know, but, but I think sometimes we take that into our own hands and do try to try to bring, um, worldly solutions for spiritual warfare. And you, you had mentioned a couple before. Do you want to get into that? We can. I mean, I remember it's happened a couple of different times where, uh, you know, Disney will do something that, uh, that, you know, the church rightfully doesn't like, but then the reaction is, well, we're all just going to boycott Disney, uh-huh. um, which may or may not be a good idea. Yeah. You know, if you feel strongly, if God, like that your family shouldn't. Yeah, you got a personal yeah, conviction yeah, about it. Yeah. Do that. Yeah. Um, but don't fall into the trap of thinking that boycotting Disney is going to somehow fix the issue. Yeah. Because number one, there are plenty of people who are perfectly fine with everything that Disney is doing, mm-hmm. and they're going to continue to, you know, uh, to buy Disney's products and go yeah. to their, you know. Uh, and then the second thing is, if if we were able to rally and make Disney fall, someone else is going to rise up in their place and do the same things because the issue is the wickedness of our hearts. The issue is a spiritual issue. Uh, And so while there may be, like, like you said, some practical response that we, we can make that maybe even the Lord is presenting to us, that is not uh, a going to be the, the end all be all solution for that thing. I mean, even if you look at, Israel historically, right? Sometimes God called them to go to war against a neighboring country, and 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 they were victorious, and they routed them, and they ran them out. But then there was someone else who rose mm-hmm. up and came in their place, right? And you know, because there's, as long as we live in these bodies, as long as we live on this planet, you know, the flesh will war against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and it will it will be that way until the end. Well, and even that example you gave of the Israelites driving out, um, I mean, so often you'd see them drive out, but it wasn't fully. It was like, you know, and so even in that, it seems like we get complacent. Mm -hmm. We go, okay, this is good enough. And then we get comfortable. And I think that's, that. honestly, that's the danger for us. It's not that, 
Um, yes, the enemy is out to get us. He is, he is prowling like a roaring lion, right? Like he is, he is out to get our souls. Absolutely. But we've got to be careful. Um, we've got to be careful how to live in this, this, in that tension between being hyper aware of it all the time, that it's just exhausting, like, and then being totally blissfully unaware of it where we just live with this, uh, kind of blanket pulled over our heads and we just ignore it. And like, there is no evil and God's going to save me from everything. And, you know, and, um, where we have that tension and we live with it, where we are aware, Hey, there's evil in the world and the enemy's out to get us. And we've got a responsibility as shepherds to pastor our people well and protect them when we can and to help them respond to, to evil when it happens in their lives. Yeah. So it seems to me the crux of the problem here is self-deception and it is self-deception that uh, is characterized by, so when you have a tragedy or you have something that happens, if you catch yourself coming up with a story that eliminates the requirement for the presence of evil, you're probably deceiving yourself. Um, And not always. Now there's certain things like, you know, people get sick mm-hmm. people you know have car accidents like right. these are things that are not direct consequences of human malevolence mm-hmm. um but it seems to me that one of the uh, ways that we numb ourselves back into ignorance or into comfort is by trying to explain um other reasons why something might have happened that are not associated with evil we try to come up with a story that doesn't allow for the existence of evil and we try to use worldly explanations for X, Y, and Z event that happens. Mm-hmm. And so, right. um, so maybe Todd, you had mentioned that the gospel is key to kind of maintaining this spiritual awareness. And I think that's interesting um, in the sense of how much of this is tied to the lack of fire and brimstone preachers. You know, so f- for instance, when I think of a, an accurate teaching of the gospel, it's it's not a teaching that doesn't involve the reality of hell. Mm-hmm. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone in the mm-hmm. Bibles. Yeah. And so part of the gospel is the knowledge of the problem of not having it, yeah. of, of not, yeah. you know, and, and so on a, and Mel, I think, I think that your point is good that we can't be at hundred, 100% awareness of this all the time because it would crush us. It would just mm-hmm. would be um, debilitating and we would be crushed by anxiety and all the rest. Um, but on a weekend, let's say, mm-hmm. what can we do as in pastoral leadership to push people towards, <clears throat> like, do you think that the, that most messages that you hear in the modern church are hitting the mark in terms of delivering the balance of the gospel? And is that in, if it's too saccharine, if it's too positive, is that in part what's responsible for people being in a spiritual slumber? Um, and then we can close this topic with this question. Um, is it sometimes the best mode of operation to just say, to just tell yourself, I'm going to do everything I can to keep these, keep the people spiritually awake and keep myself spiritually awake. But at the end of the day, I just have to be waiting on the other side of that tunnel with grace mm-hmm. and not get too frustrated with them because some, if I'm not able to wake them up, something's going to, and mm-hmm. I can't, I have to resist the temptation to say, well, I told you so, you know, like, look where you are now. <laughs> Should so, so two, two part question there. Um, and it's just open to the floor. Uh, are the, 
the sermons that are being preached on weekends that are making up the zeitgeist of Christianity at this moment. Yeah. Are they too positive? Are they not involving enough fire and brimstone? And then if, if we're not able to wake people up, if it's just, if it's just predestined, let's say Mm -hmm. that we're going to go through this cycle of spiritual slumber and then revival and awakening. Mm -hmm. Um, how do we, how do we resist temptation to say, I told you so. And how do we uh, resist frustration with the people? As somebody who preaches regularly, most weekends, um, I'll, I'll answer from my perspective. Um, I, I do believe it's much easier to grow a church, um, by preaching (laughs) things that people are comfortable hearing. And so if my primary goal is to grow my church as quickly as possible, then it probably behooves me to be, you know, light on sin talk and light on hell and light on consequences and heavy on grace. Um, Now, there's nothing wrong with being heavy on grace, but it's just that imbalance and probably some of the motivation of, okay, why do I, why am I resistant to talking about sin specifically? Um, Is it because I want people to like me? Is it because I'm trying to grow the church? And like, that's the wrong motivation, you know? Um, so is there some of that in our world? Absolutely. I believe there is. Uh, when I think of, you know, you, you use the term like fire and brimstone preachers. Um, I think more of style than I do substance. Um, yeah. And so when I think of fire and brimstone preachers, I think of preachers who have one volume, you know, and it's loud and that's it. <laughs> and and again, the style is fine. I don't care. Um but it's more about, to me, it's more about the substance. What are you actually preaching? And so, you know, somebody can talk about hell in a conversational style from the platform. And, um, and I, don't, I don't think that's an issue at all. I think people receive that. I think people want a higher standard. I think we have yeah. dumbed down the gospel to such a – here's part of the tension too. Paul says we shouldn't make it hard for new believers, right? Um, and so some of us have taken that to the extreme in our churches, though, where we make it so simple and so easy and so we, it doesn't cost you anything. It's, you know, um, but that's not the gospel that Jesus propagated. Uh, Jesus said, hey, if you don't hate your mother and father, you can't be my follower. Like, so he was saying it's going to cost you something to follow me. Yeah. And so I feel like in the church, the best thing we can do is help our people understand it is going to cost you something, but what it costs you is worth the return. Um, and and so that involves preaching about hell and consequences and sin. Yeah. Um, but but again, I think unfortunately in in the Western world especially, we have moved away from that for. Um, for the purposes of church growth and right. and then we celebrate church growth and go well look how big our church is yeah. we must be doing something right well maybe like cancer grows too so like, <laughs> that's not necessarily Yikes. a good thing right <laughs> yeah yeah. Uh, yeah so th- yeah that's that's where i would take at least the first part of that well and then another thing like you're talking about fire and brimstone what comes to mind for me in regard to that is like you know i remember as a kid being exposed <laughs> to some of that right uh you know and it was Hell was real and hell was hot and everyone is going. Yeah. Right? There was no grace. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. God's mad at all of us. And uh, <laughs> you'll you be know. lucky to survive. That's right. Even yeah. if you're a Christian, <laughs> right. you still might not be a Christian. The skin of your teeth That's you're right. getting in. That's right. You know, and so. <laughs> 
And so that can create an atmosphere of fear and legalism and that kind of thing. And so part of what we've seen has been a reaction against that. Sure. Part of what's happened in the church has been a reaction against that. Uh, But what happens is the pendulum swings so far the other direction that then we do become a place where, like, there's kind of license and where we don't talk strongly enough about sin and we don't talk about the reality of eternal separation from a holy God, you know. And so we have to have the full counsel of Scripture, and we have to, you know, uh, make sure that we are, are preaching the full counsel of Scripture. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's the only antidote for either of those extremes is that we make sure that we are we are teaching the whole word of God in, in whether we are uncomfortable with it or not. Right. If if there is something in the scriptures that is contrary to my what I what I tend to believe or what's going on in my life or my behavior it's it's not the word of god that is that is wrong right it's not the word of mm-hmm. god that's in error it's me and so you know whether i'm the pastor or whether i'm someone in the in the you know in the pews in the chairs right in the like, when the word of god confronts an issue in my life i need to conform to the word of god not the other way around and so we have to just Say God, no matter how uncomfortable this might be, no matter how, no matter how much this might confront the issues of my heart or what's going on in my mind or what's going on in my life, I am going to hold Your Word uh, at a high value, and it's, I'm going to ensure that it, you know that it is the the single rule for faith and conduct in mm-hmm. in my life. I don't even remember the second question. I talked too long. Yeah. So the the second piece there is when you have something like a tragedy that happens and it doesn't have to be a global tragedy it can be at the level of a person's family or an individual yeah i think these things just scale um what's the best way to walk someone through the other side of that Uh so when their eyes are open so you said you live with an expectation that it's it's going to happen like I'm, i'm gonna try to help them but even if i don't then imagine the person who sits in your office for a year listening to your advice mm-hmm. and then rejects all of it uh-huh. <laughs> and then tragedy strikes them and yeah. they come back and say oh this this and this happened i don't understand how this could have happened like yeah. how, how could this the temptation in that moment i imagine is just fierce to yeah. t- to just, even implicitly say i told you so yeah yeah how do you walk through that in a way that is best for the individual who's coming to you for help i told you so might be nice like i oh, want to because we, I've had people that are like, <laughs> that have said, th- literally said things like, I tithe. Why would God let this happen? Like, what? Like, have, have you not paid attention to the Bible at all? <laughs> like, have you not heard anything yeah. I've said? Yeah. Like, you can't bribe God. Let's, uh, yeah, come on now. So, I mean, we deal with this stuff all the time. And every pastor who's listening to this, he, you deal with this stuff mm-hmm. um, because it's just part of pastoring, unfortunately. Um, and so I think you, you extend as high a level of grace as you possibly can, um, and you just walk them through it. You walk them through their mess. And, um, and gosh, I like being right a lot. <laughs> like, it's one of my favorite things is being right. And, and it's hard. It's hard not to say, well, you remember I talked about that when I preached on, you know, or you remember when you were in my office, we talked about, like, 
we we want to point out so that they will go, yeah, I should have listened to you. So it'll validate us or, you know, like I know and, but, but we've got to resist that urge. That's just pride. That's just selfish. And so that doesn't help them down the road at all. So yeah, I think I just have to extend as much grace as I possibly can love them really well. And, uh, and just have the expectation. And, And part of disappointments is, it's directly related to our expectations. So if we expect people to blow it, we're not going to be disappointed. Like if we expect people to to have a non-linear path to God, you know, where there's ebbs and flows and ups and downs, then we're not going to be disappointed. And so part of it is for me yeah. just understanding, hey, this person's growing in their faith, but they're going to take a step back at some point or they're going to step off the path or they're going to get sideways. So that's part of it for me. But then when it does happen, when somebody just goes off the rails, something disaster happens in their life, whatever it is, just to love them well. And So how much of that is accomplished by looking at a person who's growing in their faith and understanding that the fact of them growing in their faith is not your work in them? Um, and so I think about that, like, right, because it's, it, yeah. it's kind of like your work in them in a sense, because you're, you're teaching, you're preaching, you're sitting mm-hmm. with them and counseling. So they're benefiting from your work. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you claim full ownership of their sanctification, then when it doesn't work or yeah. when it fails, then you have stake in the game, uh-huh. you know, then you're like, oh, okay, well maybe there's something wrong with what I'm doing if they're doing this now, but that you never even arrive at that. If you recognize that. I'm just going to do the best I can. I'm going to be faithful in the way I teach and the way I counsel. But if they don't listen, then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, let's be honest. Like, If you're a pastor and you're listening to this, you have wrestled with those feelings. Yeah. You like if somebody, especially somebody that you've walked in relationship with goes off the rails, you, you do think those things. You think, did I do something wrong? Did mm-hmm. I miss something? Did I? And, and and those are normal. Like that's a normal response. There's nothing it, like it's. You're not sinning because you have those those questions and feelings. Because the reality is, there may have been something you could have done differently. That's yeah. true, right? You may have. Uh, maybe I should have had more intentional conversations with them mm-hmm. and and not been as casual as I was. Maybe there were things, yeah, right? The where we where we where we fall into error is when we then um, take responsibility for their actions because we've done less than we could have or made a mistake in some way. Like, you know, the, the point is that, like, that we, we need to learn from those things. How can I do this differently next time? Um, but, but we can't take ownership of that person's choices because, right. because ultimately they're their choices to make, not ours as pastors. And, like we can't we can't stop anybody from doing anything if they want to right we 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 counsel we teach we shepherd we walk with them but ultimately they have to make their own choices they are responsible yeah. for those things and and if i take ownership of those things i'll be crushed under that yeah. weight yeah whether positive or negative if they're if they're killing it man if they're doing great and they're growing and like if i take if if i take credit for that then, then I'm putting myself in the seat of God. If I take ownership of their choices in the in a negative context, well, then again, I'm putting myself in a position that I should not be occupying. I'm taking responsibility for things that I cannot control, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's a dangerous place to be, um, because either we become super filled with pride 
uh, and then, you know, pride goes before a fall, or we are crushed under the weight of, uh, you know, failure. Yeah. 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 And you use the word ownership. And I think there are aspects of ministry we should feel ownership. Like, I want to be careful. Like when I talk about my people, these are my people, not in a, they're my people, not your people kind of way, but they're my people. Like I want to cover them. I yeah. want to protect them. I want to, you know, just like my kids, my family, whatever it is. So I think there's a level of ownership we should feel that I think is healthy. But when it comes to the outcomes, that's where we have to understand we're not owners, we're stewards. Yeah. That, yeah. that hey, I don't I don't control what's happening. I'm I'm responsible before God for the people that are under my care. But at the end of the day, the the results are up to him. So yeah. I'm going to steward them as well as I can. And, and uh, you know, the difference between an owner of a business and a worker in a business is the worker will go home and not think about the business at night, yeah. but the owner never stops thinking about the business. And so again, I think that that makes sense here in this, in this analogy that I think with our people, in some sense, we are owners, but we have to live with a worker's mentality that the results are not up to me, right? Like what the person chooses to do or doesn't do, I, I can't, I can't live and die with that. I've got to be able to say, okay, God, they're your people. They're not my people. I'm stewarding these people for you. And, uh, yeah. and we're leaving the results that we're leaving, you know, what they decide, you know, how they respond to you ultimately. And I think that's the only way we can live with that tension uh, because pastors, they literally go crazy um, trying to main, yeah. um, well, trying to keep everybody happy and trying to keep everybody healthy and growing and pointed in the right direction. And, and I think the difference is they, they don't shift into that stewardship role where it's like, okay, God, but this is ultimately up to you. I'm going to work like crazy. I'm going to pray like crazy. I'm going to love well, but ultimately God, it's up to you. Yeah. And this may be a bit of an overstatement because you know, but I'll just say this and semantically, maybe it, it's helpful. The thing that comes to mind for me is like, I have a responsibility to yeah. the people that yep. God has placed before me. I'm not responsible for the people that God, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I know that, that, that can be, there can be some gray area in that, but it, it's helpful for me to think of it in that way, mm -hmm. because then if there is something that an issue that arises or whatever, what I have to ask myself is, Lord, have I have I met my responsibility toward these people, to these people, right? Yeah. Have I have I done, have I been faithful to do to the best of my ability what you've called me to do in regard to these people? So then I feel I, I feel a sense of ownership and my responsibility to them, but I don't I don't feel like responsible for what they've done. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let, let's pull this apart a little bit more because this really is the key. I think this difference between ownership and stewardship, this is the key to, uh, I think longevity in pastoral ministry, especially whenever you're dealing. I mean, I think this only gets harder, the more people that you're, the bigger your church becomes because mm -hmm. more people means more problems and all the rest. Okay. So I think Biggie said that <laughs> <laughs> something, something like that. Um, we have to remember that there there were people who stood in earshot of Jesus Christ and didn't accept what he taught. Yeah, they were yeah. like, meh. Yeah, like there, there were people who were One in attendance. One of the 12. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. We, we had people in attendance at the Sermon on the Mount. They were unmoved. Who were just like, okay, what am I having for dinner? Mm -hmm. Like, And so, but that wasn't tied. That, that was 
from a worldly perspective, Jesus failed in that moment because mm-hmm. his message didn't drive home, like, right? And, mm-hmm. and, but, but he didn't fail. Like he wasn't, he was completely successful in what he came to do. It's just that, so this is one of the things that I think is interesting. You can look at someone who's um, just absurdly incompetent at least in, in your eyes, and you can think, okay, well, this person is just terribly incompetent at their job. But it's also possible that, no, they're not incompetent. They're, they're actually really competent. We just don't know what their job is. And so that's where, like, right, the, the job that they're doing is not what we think they're doing. I am killing it. You just don't know what I'm doing. Uh, okay, so... Yeah. so uh, Knowing of specific employees I've had through the years that they, that they couldn't formulate the language that well, but that's what they were trying to say. Like, I'm not bad at my job. You just have me doing the wrong job. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so this is mission critical when you're going to start off in as a pastor is you have to know what actually am I trying to do? What mm-hmm. is my yeah. job? Because success yeah. is defined by what I say my job is, yeah. what the, the parameters of the job actually is. Okay, so if you get that wrong, then you're not gonna be able to identify success and failure, and then you're not gonna be able to control the feeling of whether or not you're failing, and then you're not gonna be able to control your longevity and all this. Some of this uh, misapprehending what the job actually is, I think is tied to, and you can, you guys can speak to this much more clearly than I can, I think that what pastors sometimes do is they take their relationship with themselves and their children and they use that relationship as the paradigm for how they deal with the congregation. So I don't think it's, I, this is ownership and stewardship thing, right? I think that the dynamics of a relationship between a parent and a child is not the same as the dynamics of a relationship between a shepherd and his flock in the sense that there is more ownership when it comes to the child. Now, again, children grow up, grow up, and then it becomes more of a steward, Absolutely. stewardship type of deal. But it, it's, th- there is a, I think if, I think if you imagine, uh, and I say, I have to say, imagine yourself with little kids because I've never had them. If you imagine yourself with little kids, um, you you feel responsible for their choices you feel responsible mm-hmm. for their outcomes and if you mm-hmm. if you actually don't feel that then they will more often than not have a bad outcome like if if your child runs out into the street and you say something like well he doesn't see the cars that's his fault that's that's just not a good <laughs> yeah. way to parent but i think that that changes as the child grows older and i think that that level of ownership is probably never actually there when it comes to the the pastor and the congregation because we're it's just a different kind of relationship so can we pull that apart a little bit um are are there good degrees of ownership i don't that we're bringing in that that we use in parent-child relationships that we're bringing into the church or i mean just to to go with your analogy i mean i think a shepherd uh you know there's a reason they carried a crook right they like you can grab a sheep and pull it away from the mm-hmm. ledge or that kind of thing so so there 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 is part of that as our role as pastors is like if we see a member of our congregation who's going into the ditch we have a responsibility to speak up we have a responsibility to you know to try to pull them back from the ledge so to speak and so there's some overlap there i think what what is relevant in what you're saying is that especially if we want to bring the the father and child context that god is their father Mm -hmm. right that 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 level of responsibility that i can that level of ownership I, i i surrender that to the lord right and then i'm able as a pastor to have a level of 
benevolent detachment, right? Uh, We're like an uncle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, no, but you know what? I, does that make sense? Yeah. Like, yeah. again, so that, man, I grieve when people fall into the ditch. Mm-hmm. And I should then ask, did I do what I was... Was I faithful to what God was calling me to do in this moment? Were there things that I might have done differently? How could I pastor them better? Or how can I shepherd them now in this moment? But I don't I don't then become crushed under the weight of this is, you know, of their choices. And I, and that's a that's a difficult tight rope to walk sometimes. So do you know if you're walking the tightrope accurately if when you encounter like say you're at a funeral or you're at you're you're involved in something where someone went badly astray and paid terrible consequences for it if your sense of ownership motivates you to do better in the future does that mean you're on the tightrope accurately because I, it seems to me there's a big difference between okay so there's two places we don't want to end up we don't want to end up crushed by guilt like oh i'm just terrible at this you know i'm the reason they they died i'm the reason why they're in this situation uh, i shouldn't even be i have no business being in pastoral leadership we don't want to be there we also don't want to be in so much detachment that it's like oh well you know it's he did this to himself it is what it is like you know that we don't want to take any resp- mm-hmm. no responsibility at all. Like I've had moments. Funerals are really interesting for me because <clears throat> almost always they help me renew my perspective of like, okay, this is why mm-hmm. pastors yeah. should be doing pastoral ministry. Like this is where, especially funerals of people who had lives that did not end well. It's like, okay, they needed someone who wasn't there. Um, and I don't feel that in the sense of like, well, we're all just garbage. Like, why are we even trying? Because I think that would be not walking the tightrope, right? So what I'm trying to, I guess what I'm trying to get to here is what's the sense that you have that tells you that you're walking the tightrope accurately? For me, what it is, is it's motivation. It's like, if I can encounter something like that and I can say, okay, I need to be better and I can be better. And this is why I need to be better. And so let's go. Like that tells me that I'm on the tightrope, right? Is that how it is for you guys or... Boy, we're getting deep. Now. Yeah, man. This, I mean, this is just a hard one. Yeah. Whether it's as a pastor or whether it is as a parent, like I have a friend um, who's a, a worship pastor at a church in another city, uh, whose twenty-two-year-old daughter died of a fentanyl overdose this past week, mm-hmm. right, right before Christmas. Right. So if you're if you're that parent, right. What kind of questions do you wrestle with at that mm-hmm. point? Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, our 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 reaction oftentimes is to 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 question the Lord, right? To be angry, to be in, and all of those. Look, all of those things are legitimate emotions, right? And 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 I'm not. I don't want to discount those or 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 set them aside. Or that those are real things, and we have to wrestle with those things. The, the question in those moments is, have we built our faith on what is real and true in such a way that it will sustain us in those moments, right? Can I, if I'm that parent who's in that moment, can I grieve and mourn and look at my child who's gone and ask myself, 
what what might I, what might I have done differently? How might I have parented differently? And then have that affect the way that I I you know if I have other children, the way that I I, I lead and guide and, and parent them. It it should be the case, right? But if man, this is so tricky, right? This is yeah. so hard because then like the tendency can be then to go. It's my fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is and, such a terrifying question, Todd, that like people will say in the aftermath of something like that, like the one of their main thrusts of comforting someone is like, you did, this isn't your fault. You know, like mm-hmm. you're going to ask why that's normal, but it's, it's not yeah, your fault. You did everything you could. But you're, yeah. you're pointing out, Todd, right? Like the, this, there is a fruit to be had in asking those questions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And... Well, and, and and let me, I mean, let me back up just a little bit, even, you know, talking about ownership and parents and church and even with my kids, I would say, um, even when they were little, I didn't, I had a limited amount of control. I could control behavior to some degree, yeah. but I couldn't control attitudes. I couldn't control mindsets. Um, I could modify their behavior with a carrot or a stick basically. Right. Right. Like, so that's what I would do. But even as a child, as a two or three year old, I couldn't, I couldn't control what they thought or, you know, what their heart was or, um, but my prayer was as I'm, as I'm guiding them and exerting a high level of control over little kids, right. That, that they will be guided in the right direction. I think the same thing is true in the church too, Mm -hmm. because new believers, we want to be hands-on with them and we can't control their heart and we can't control their mindset, but we can, we can help institute some control on some behaviors, hopefully, or some patterns. And, and so I think understanding that we're not really in control of any of it is really important. Yeah. And just saying, okay, um, you know, the owner steward thing at the end of the day, we just go, we're going to do the best we can as pastors, as parents, as a dad, as a husband, like I'm going to do the best I can, but I can't control very much of anything. And that's terrifying, but I have to be okay with that because that is the world we live in. And that's what, that's why it's so hard for us to authentically trust God because mm-hmm. it requires us to relinquish control and just go, okay, yeah. are you good? I think you are. Are yeah. you are you powerful? I think you are. So I'm going to trust you. Yeah, yeah. I think you know going going back to the well going back to Jesus right in his example. Uh, you're talking about success earlier. What Jesus defined as success was faithfulness. I he said I only do what the Father tells me to do, right? Uh, and that included not being able to do many miracles in his hometown, yeah. right? Because of their unbelief, right? But Jesus went and he preached and he did what he was called to do there. And in other places, it was wildly successful, right? And uh, but, but what he defined as success was faithfulness. And we have, to, we have to learn to live in that space so that I don't take credit when I don't deserve it and I don't take responsibility or blame that's not mine to take either my question simply has to be did i do what god has called me to do was i faithful to what god placed in front of me to do 
And if I can answer that question with a yes, then then I can hold all of those other things with an open hand. That doesn't mean we don't celebrate the successes, right? We give God the glory for those things, and we we rejoice that we've gotten to be uh, partners with God in in doing those things and seeing those things happen. Um, and on the other side, we grieve the losses because we know that it breaks God's heart. We know mm-hmm. that the effects of sin destroy, and but but we are. We are neither too inflated by the one nor crushed by the other. And that's a difficult spot to live in. Like it, it requires us continuing to set our eyes on Jesus, right? Uh, scriptures say that, you know, he will keep in perfect peace those whose hearts are set on him. And so we have to continually set our hearts on Jesus. Uh, and and I think, again, the gospel is the antidote to all of these things. Yeah, yeah, you're certainly correct that that is the, the difficult space to live in. And Mel, I think you raised the point, maybe the point of why it's so difficult to live in that space and that it, it is when you are not taking responsibility or credit for the things that are happening around you, then the question is no longer about whether or not you are good and whether or not you failed. The question is whether or not God is good. Yeah. And that's a much scarier question Yeah. because you can only answer that question with faith as far mm-hmm. as I can tell, because you can look at, you can certainly live through micro situations where if you don't have any other information input, it doesn't look like God is good. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't look like God is powerful. Um, sometimes it doesn't even look like God is there. Mm-hmm. And that's that's hard for anyone, even the irreligious. I don't think that they can deal with moving forward in a space where the highest of all value, the highest of all power, the highest of all control is set against them, or if they perceive that that is set against them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's much more difficult than, because you can fix yourself, you know, like you can, you can make yourself better. Um, but if you're, if, but if the problem is God, there's not much you can do about that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this translates, I know like, I spent a lot of time thinking about God and I'm still kind of afraid of praying for things that are really, really important to me. Um, and the reason is because when you pray for something that's really important to you, um, you're putting that in God's hands and you're, you're, whether or not that's answered is that's up to God. Mm -hmm. And then you have to figure out a way to structure your relationship with God in the aftermath of the possibility of that prayer not being answered. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you guys, do you guys deal with that at all? Like, you know, I know that we're supposed to be praying without ceasing, but are there certain things in your life and we don't have to get too personal on the podcast, but maybe just a simple yes or no, uh, would suffice. Um, I don't know if Todd's had that rash that he's been praying about for years. <laughs> <laughs> it's your thorn in the flesh. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I don't know. Should we talk about that or we'll edit it and post it. Okay. Uh, um, are, are there certain things that you're at least like they have more prayer weight to you mm-hmm. yeah. than other things. Like you're, you know, you, you don't want to sp- spend that money flippantly. Like mm-hmm. you kind of, yep. you, you hold close to it and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to pray for this, but I'm, I'm not going to pray for this every day because I can't, it's, it, it exhausts me to think about it. It exhausts me to contemplate the possibility of repeatedly not having this thing answered. Mm-hmm. And what do people do about that? Like as a Christian, as a pastor, like what do you do? I think it's just part of our maturing in our faith is, um, is 
understand. Well, okay, Paul's maturation in the faith was reverse, right? Right. So, like, he when he was first saved, he talked about I'm the least of, but as he grew in his faith, he ended up being the least of all sinners. Like I am, or the greatest. I'm the greatest of all sinners, basically. And I think, I think as we mature in our faith, it should invoke or evoke humility in us, so that I think. My expectations of who God is go up, but my expectations on what God owes me goes down. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that so that I it gives me the freedom to pray a prayer that maybe God doesn't want to answer, but as I grow in my faith, my heart becomes more humbled and I don't feel like I deserve it. Like because if yeah. God is sufficient, if God really is enough, then do I need whatever I prayed for, no matter how good it is, whether it's a healing of a loved one or the re- restoration of a relationship, all those things are really, really big yeah. things. It's not like we're praying for, you know, a raise at work or I'm praying for that gift for Christmas. Like they're important things, but in light of our relationship with God, they become relatively minor. And so I think as we grow in our faith, we should be maturing and we should be humbling and, you know, be living in humility. And I think that helps us manage that tension. Yeah. You know, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be a lot easier if this was just cut and dry, right? Yeah. Like if it, you know, uh, here's the rule. <laughs> yeah. Step one, step two. Right. Yeah. If the, you know, <laughs> if, the if, you know, if the, if the, you know, like, uh, well, I'm going to, I guess, call out like if the word of faith guys were, were, were correct. And look, we just don't have enough faith. You know, if we have yeah, more faith yeah. then this would happen or, yeah. you know, or, uh, you know, on the other end of the spectrum is like, well, Life's poop. Deal with it. You know, yeah. uh, if it would be easier if if one of those tr- were true, right? If mm-hmm. one of those extremes were true, it'd be easier. If it was just really cut and dry, but it's not. Yeah, right. We have an ex- we have examples in scripture, like with Daniel, where where the the angel arrives and says, "It was your continued prayer, right?" You mm-hmm. it, or Jesus saying, "Hey, keep knocking, keep asking, right. like be the persistent neighbor at midnight." But at the same time, you have Paul going, I asked three times that the Lord might take this thorn from me. And he's, you know, and the Lord said, no. But then he said, my grace is sufficient for you, right? And so we have to get to that place, right? It's not cut and dry. And what has to be enough for us, what has to be sufficient for us is the grace of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've been guaranteed. Jesus doesn't guarantee us like on this side of heaven, we're not guaranteed a healing, right? God chooses to heal. There are times when, but but it is not a it is not a guarantee on this side of heaven, right? Um, that we're not that there's not going to be any trouble or any difficulty or any like that we're not guaranteed any of those things. What we are promised, what we are guaranteed, is Christ Himself. That He will give us Himself. That he will walk with us in those moments. That yes, there are times he will break through and do miraculous things, but there are other times when simply his abiding presence is the thing that will sustain us and carry us. You know, Second Peter chapter one, Peter said, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Right? In this moment, right now, you and I have everything that we need for life and godliness. The mistake we make is in thinking, if I just had this, I would have everything I need. If I could just receive this healing, I'd have everything that I need. If I could just get this promotion, I would have everything that I need. If I could, if, 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 right? 
You have everything that you need because you have Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And if that is not the thing that sustains me, then there's nothing else that's going to satisfy me. If I got the healing, I would still be lacking because my, my reliance is not on Jesus. If I got the promotion, I would still be greedy because the thing that I'm relying on isn't Jesus. And we, we, we put our eyes on so many other things, whether it's us as pastors looking at our people or the success of our church, and, or whether it's, whether it's you know, the, your, your friend down the street, you know, what, whatever. Like we, we all fall into that trap because we, we take our eyes off of the thing that really will satisfy us, that really does give us fullness and contentment and, and causes us to overcome, right? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know that there's so, anything So else. on the ground, and this is the, the last question, I, I suppose we'll end in sadness. Um, when, when you, does this, does this mean that stoicism in prayer is a mark of a mature Christian. So no, it's being so, well, okay. So if you're at the bedside of a dying loved one and you, your prayer is constituted of, look, I really want this to be different. Like I want this to change. I don't want this to be how things end, but your will, not mine. Is that, is that what that looks like? Or is it in terms of prayer specifically, um, is there is crying out and and just just begging for an, an alternative ending? Uh, is that while not being wrong per se, is it a mark of spiritual immaturity over against understanding the the fullness that you have in Christ? And maybe I don't know that I would label it that way. I don't know that I would sit with a grieving family and be like, let's talk about your immaturity. Um, you know, but, but maybe in the grand scheme of things, when we're looking at the the macro instead of the micro, th- that might be part of it. But I also, um, like even when I'm with a family that is in the, what seemingly the final moments with a loved one, um, a lot of times I'll ask them like, how do you want me to pray? Um, right. Well, they're ready to go to heaven. Like we're gonna miss them, but we're, we're they're ready to go to heaven. So like, okay, this is how we're gonna pray. God, I pray that they would pass peacefully and comfortably. You know, that you would welcome them to to your to your glory. You know, I'll pray that way. And if they say, well, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, we want to pray for healing. Okay, they're 104, and you know they've yeah. been sick for a year and a half. And okay, yeah, let's pray because. All we can do is ask, so let's ask. But it's living with, it's being, um, it's trusting God enough to say, not my will, but thy will be done, right? Like, okay, God, this, I know what I want, but I know you're smarter than me and you're better than me. And yeah, so I don't know. I, I think maybe immaturity might be part of it. Um, but let's be honest. I mean, you know, my dad passed away about three years ago and I didn't care what God's will was at that point, right? Like, yeah. I just didn't want my dad to pass. So right. I was praying in the Atlanta airport. I was, like, weeping openly and praying that God would save my dad. And my dad passed away anyway. But I had to respond to that and say, that's not a reflection on the goodness of God, though. Right. Um, that is that is the fallen nature of the world we live. And here is here is 
what precipitates this, right? It's not that God is good or, or bad or not powerful. It's that God is good and powerful, but he's also sovereign. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, you know, I think that there's, you know, should we pray nevertheless your will? The short answer is yes. I think, I think always that should be our heart. Nevertheless, your will be done. Uh, but I don't think that that means that we don't pray for healing. Like, if we believe that God is a good father, mm-hmm. then we also know that he wants us to ask, right? My kids don't have any trouble asking me for what they want. I don't always say yes, uh, and they don't always understand why I say no sometimes, <laughs> right? Uh, but if they know that I love them, then they trust me. And so do we, not, do we stop asking for healing? Absolutely not. But we, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot, and uh, you, we trust that God is in charge of uh, the mode, the method, and the moment of, of someone's healing, right? And what I mean by that when I, is that, like, whether it's natural or supernatural, God's in control of that if they receive their healing. When you talk about method, right, whether it's on this side of glory or the other side of eternity, God is in control of that, and he's in control of the moment, right? It may not be when I pray right now. It may be further down the line. It may be on the other side of eternity. Does that mean that I stop praying for healing? Absolutely not. Now, I believe that it does change the way in which I pray, especially whether in regard to whether or not a person is a believer or not. Right? If someone's on their deathbed and they don't know Jesus, they need a healing so that they might have the opportunity to, to give their life to Christ, right? Like, so if it's someone, for example, who's comatose and, you know, aren't, aren't able to respond, and of course we can trust God with that, that, you know, the people might be able to hear you when they're comatose. I don't know all of that stuff, but I'm saying that no. the way in which I approach that as a a follower of Jesus in response. It's like, I should be praying for mercy for them, for grace on them, you know, that that, that healing might be something that turns them toward Jesus. For In regard to someone who already is following Christ, who's, a, you know, like, it's like what Mel said. If the family's going, hey, you know, they've lived a good life. They love the Lord. They're ready to go home. Let's pr- can you just pray that the Lord will take them on? Well, that's, that's, you know, anyway, God, God's in control of those things. Uh, and we have to trust him with those things. There's a, we always are living within the tension of the already but not yet. Always. Yeah, difficult stuff, heavy stuff, but I think valuable and productive. And um, I think that, uh, I mean, ministry is difficult. So I Thanks, think that, Francisco Goya. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go look up those paintings. They'll make you happy. All right. Uh, <laughs> thank you guys for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we'll see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.